It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Election College, episode number 263, Garrett Hobart. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for election college, and class is in session. Now, your hosts, Jason Goff and Ben Smith. Jason, we just got off a couple episodes talking about William McKinley and his wife, Ida. And, you know, the next guy up, the next vice president is Theodore Roosevelt, right? Um, no. Oh. Okay. Well, we forgot one. There, there's There's got to be somebody else in there, right? <laughs> it's, uh, Garrett Hobart. Garrett Hobart was William McKinley's original vice president. And I have to admit to you that until we did the episode about this election where they were they were elected together... I had never in, let's see, that was probably two years ago, in 28 years, to my knowledge, never heard the man's name. So that just tells you that he's an underappreciated or underrecognized vice president. He's very underappreciated, and I don't know if it has anything to do with the fact that his president was underappreciated or what, but this guy had quite a life, and he's definitely worthy of an election college episode, notwithstanding that he was vice president, but well, that's a pretty prestigious thing to get an election college episode. It is, yeah. You, you should be proud, Garrett Hobart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Garrett Augustus Hobart, I love that middle name. I really I do. do. Too. Uh, was born in Long Branch, New Jersey, in 1844. And his parents were Addison Willard and Sophia Vanderveer. And they came down through the ranks of the early colonial settlers. And of course, you know, many of them came across back in the 1600s. And he was a direct descendant of that line. And of the Hobarts, a ton of them ended up being pastors. And his heritage was a religious, a long religious heritage there in New England and uh, he was born in New Jersey. Everything is legal in New Jersey. That's true. I just started listening to the soundtrack from Hamilton again, and uh-huh. the the one-liners just keep coming, so sorry, everybody. <laughs> yeah, so Garrett attends his dad's school in Long Branch, and they moved <laughs> to Marlboro in the early 1850s, and he is sent to the village school And, you know, people are thinking, hey, this kid is pretty smart. He goes to Middletown Point Academy, which is later known as Glenwood Institute, the Glenwood Institute. And he graduates in 1859 at the age of 15. And his parents are like, hey, boy, you're too young 
to go to college. So come here, work, uh, learn a few things. And then that's exactly what he does before he enrolls at Rutgers, where he graduates at the age of 19 and he finishes third in his class. So this guy's pretty smart. Yeah, for sure. He ended up, uh, after he had graduated from Rutgers and got on into what we'll get into in a minute, uh, he donates a lot of money. And there's a lot of stuff at Rutgers named after him. Uh, he was a trustee there uh, as well. He, as I alluded to, goes on to be, that's right, an attorney. He <laughs> he didn't actually end up serving in the Army like many of his contemporaries, uh, but he was taken in under the auspices of Socrates Tuttle, which is just, this episode is just full of amazing names. I know, if you had Augustus and Socrates together in one room, yeah. wow. Yeah. So he gets taken in to read law, and he ends up becoming a kind of a understudy of Tuttle. And Tuttle's a really prominent lawyer in the area, and uh, during the time where Hobart was employed under him, he also worked as a bank clerk and then later becomes the director of that same bank. And so just kind of what he does, he excels at. He gets admitted to the bar in 1866. He becomes a counselor at law in 1871. And then in 1872, he becomes a master in chancery. So just continuing to climb the ranks, become a better, better attorney. And uh, he's also got that business mind, which we'll talk about here. Yeah. So in the midst of all of this, what do you do when you're working with Socrates Tuttle? Well, you see that he has a daughter, uh, Jenny. And guess what? Jenny and our buddy Garrett look at each other and they just fall in love. So it always helps to, you know, fall in love with the boss's daughter. As long as you're not married. I think that's okay. So, so, um, Hobart becomes a... Republican in the midst of all of this because his family is very well known as being a staunch Democrat family. But, you know, you do what the boss tells you to do. And he becomes a Republican. And lo and behold, this beautiful Republican Hobart family has four (laughs) children, uh, only to survive infancy and uh, actually only one, his son, uh, Garrett Jr., survives him. So you can imagine just the, the personal pain that all of these people who are leaders in our nation's history, th- this isn't that long ago, and they're experiencing uh, tragedy in, in the midst of their lifetime. So remember, Mr. Socrates Tuttle is pretty influential there in Patterson. We talked about how he was well-known in, in the area. And this really hooks Hobart up uh, to uh, to just get real about it. He um, benefits pretty greatly because of the fact that Tuttle was well-known. And in 1866, Hobart becomes the lawyer, like we said. He pretty much gets appointed immediately as the grand jury clerk for the county. And then when Tuttle gets to become the mayor of Patterson... In 1871, he's like, yeah, I think I'll give my buddy Hobart the city councilor job. So it doesn't take long before he becomes the council for the board of chosen freeholders of the county as well. Uh, So 
couple years later, 1872 comes along, Hobart runs for the New Jersey General Assembly as a Republican, which this is just a couple years after he switches from being a Democrat to a Republican. And of course, in those days, the divide was more hidden, but just as deep as it is now. And he gets elected by about two thirds of the vote. Yeah, in 1874, so only a couple years after he gets that position, he is voted as Speaker of the Assembly. That's pretty crazy. And he does this for two terms. After two terms, it's a customary thing. It's not the rule, but, you know, you did what was customary, especially back then. And he decides to step down, and in 1876... He is nominated for the New Jersey Senate seat for Passaic County, and he gets elected to a three-year term, and he gets re-elected there as well. And gets get this, Ben, he becomes the president of the state Senate. So this guy, he was a man in charge. It's kind of funny, Jason, because when he stepped down from that seat, he actually campaigned for the Republican nominee. Uh, who ended up getting elected. So I'm sure his party wasn't very happy with him. But uh, after he served those two terms as Speaker of the Assembly, he was like, yeah, I don't want to do it anymore. That's fine. I'll campaign for somebody else to get it. Pretty impressive. I think that either shows a little bit of character or that he wasn't devoted one or the other. Right. I tell you what, this guy, he, he would have been an election college listener because he said that he, quote, makes politics his recreation. I guess if I'm quoting nice. him, I need to say my recreation, but you know what I mean. He yes. liked to get involved in politics, and he, yes, was still a lawyer, but he wasn't the kind of lawyer that you would find in the courtroom very often. As a matter of fact, among lawyers, he spent probably the least amount of time in the courtroom uh, from any of his colleagues. He really was the corporate type lawyer and he would um, offer advice and uh, all kinds of good tips to the corporate world and thus he became quite wealthy because well let's just put it this way he had some information about what was going on in the corporate world exactly and he kind of is pretty well he's pretty savvy uh he ends up being on multiple boards and in different types of business. And I'm getting a little ahead here, but at that time, you know, it was customary that if you were going to have a new position that you would move away from some of those business practices. And he's like, well, I do well with these business practices. None of them are conflicting with the job I'm doing now. So why again, is it that you want me to leave it just because you don't want the appearance of it? And so he basically said, hey, I, I'm not breaking any laws. I'm not doing anything unethical. I'm going to keep running these businesses or at least being on the boards and still be a politician, essentially. Yeah, very comfortable in his own skin as a private sector guy. There's nothing in conflict with his private life and his public life, or so he said. Yeah. Now, Jenny... I can't want to say Jenna, <laughs> a little Forrest, <laughs> Forrest Gump going on, but uh, she has a suspicion that her husband could become a vice presidential contender. She has this lunch. She goes to this lunch at the Waldorf Hotel in New York in 1895. And during this 
meal. Some of these big wig industrialists, including Mark Hanna, kind of appeal to Garrett and say, what do you think? What do you think of this guy, William McKinley? And uh, Hanna, it turns out, was one of McKinley's biggest supporters. Um, Hobart was like, hmm, you know, he's all right. I'm not going to get too far into this, but yeah, we all know what's going to happen. So Hobart, he's the man, or at least he's <laughs> a man, a very prominent man in what's going to happen in 1896 for said William McKinley. Before that comes around, he kind of shows off his political prowess by running the campaign for John Griggs, who gets elected governor of New Jersey in November of 1895. And really, this is the first Republican governor in New Jersey for about 35 years. So it makes a, uh, a pretty big splash. And a lot of people recognize that Hobart is the one who kind of pulled all the strings and was basically running the campaign and making things happen. So the New Jersey Republicans are like, okay, look, um, this guy's got potential. He's one of us. He's a Republican. They don't know about his backstory, you know, before he met Jenny. <laughs> or maybe they do. I don't know. And so they're really anticipating nominate him and seeing him get boosted up in, uh, in the nation. And they know that having him on the national ticket is really going to help out with the Republican vote in New Jersey. Keep in mind, that's a swing state. And also, when it didn't swing, we've got at least 35 years of Republican governor, or I'm sorry, Democratic governors. So having Hobart in there and having him be a popular guy, showing some success is really appealing to them. And uh, really that helps them think that that could be some more electoral votes, which would really help in the election because they haven't had the electoral votes from New Jersey in a presidential election for about 20, 25 years either. So you know, that, that's appealing. And then the other thing is Hobart's loaded. He's wealthy. So <laughs> the fact that he can finance his own campaign, essentially, and they don't need to go do a bunch of fundraising and pay for things, well, that helps as well. Yeah. Uh, ben, it's also worth mentioning, you know, just to, just to put a final nail in that uh, thought of how Democratic New Jersey was, that Hobart was the Republican candidate for Senate. Now, this was back when the senators were selected by the state legislatures. So everybody knew, including Hobart, that, yeah, it's great to get the Republican nomination to be the senator. But he knew that he wasn't going to get that because New Jersey was just that Democratic. But it was still an honor. Yeah. Yeah. So the convention comes up. McKinley gets nominated for president on the first ballot. And really, Hobart says about his ballot nomination for vice president, uh, he pretty much says it came equally as a tribute from Hannah, who wanted the ticket to satisfy the business interest of America. And Hobart, a corporate lawyer, fit that requirement perfectly. So they had talked about Hobart being the nominee for quite a while, but he is a little bit reluctant. And during the convention, he writes a letter to his wife that says, quote, it looks to me I will be nominated for vice president, whether I want it or not. <laughs> <laughs> and as I get to the point where I may, I am dismayed at the thought. If I want a nomination, everything's going my way. But when I realize that it means in work, worry and loss of home and bliss, I am overcome. So overcome, I am simply miserable, end quote. So he really 
has a lot of reservations, I guess you could say. And you have to think, you have to think that he's not the first guy to be nominated for president or vice president or any other elected office that think that has that same thought right. as he's going into the nomination process. So, of course, the Republicans, they select William McKinley as their candidate, the main man. And, of course, they select Hobart as his vice president. This happened really fast. You know, we've talked about that back um, and with other elections, how, you know, there was the 80 millionth vote. And then they finally had one guy pull his support and, and so on. That didn't happen in the Republican uh, National Convention that year. It was, yes, McKinley's our guy. Hobart is our vice president. Hobart, uh, on his way out to St. Louis for the convention, stops by McKinley's house because that's what you did, right? Well, actually, what happens is he comes to town. McKinley picks him up in his car and he's like, hey, buddy, how's it going? Nice to meet you. And the two hit it off and they're like really good friends. Better friends than most vice presidents and presidents had been up until this time. We all know what happens. McKinley wins. Hobart wins. And Hobart does what any good vice president does. He goes home and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study this vice president job. <laughs> he, he pulls out his role of the Constitution. He's like, where is it in here? What's the job description? And he figures, oh, there's not much of a job description. But... In the midst of all this, he does exactly what he had done before. And he says, I'm going to remain on the boards of these businesses that don't conflict. That's cool. Everybody else is going to be cool with it, too, because I just won a big election uh, with a very popular guy. So Hobart is all studied up by the time March rolls around and the inauguration happens. And he and McKinley are two peas in a pod. Unlike most administrations, Hobart is a president's dream because he's attending just about every session when the Senate is convening. He's there and he is holding up the president's policies. He's doing a phenomenal job, if you're a Republican and you like William McKinley, a phenomenal job of representing the president on Capitol Hill. Now, you know, it kind of reminds me of, well, Joe Biden didn't attend all the sessions of the Senate. Uh, you know, he had other stuff going on probably. And who knows? Uh, some of the Senate doesn't even attend the sessions of the Senate. But it kind of reminds me of the relationship that, that you publicly see between President Obama and uh, Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, whenever they were in office, that they always just seemed like, you know, regardless of your politics or anything, they just seemed like buddies. And that's how it was between McKinley and Hobart. They were able to talk and get along. Their wives hung out. Uh, of course, Ida was ill, uh, had some health issues and things like that. But then so Jenny uh, Hobart steps in and she comes to receptions and everything. And, you know, goes and visits her in her quarters and, and sees how that goes. So, yeah, they definitely had a close relationship and, and were able to be friends. Uh, it's funny because McKinley actually trusts Hobart so much that he turns over a portion of his salary as for being the president to Hobart because he knows Hobart's a, a smart guy and he says, hey, invest this for me. And so, uh, <laughs> you, you know, you have to – not only do you have to – 
to trust somebody to be your vice president, but to give them a chunk of cash and say, make me some money with this, uh, you got to trust them that way too. Yeah. And the trust continues and you think everything is going to be just fine. But in 1898, Hobart falls ill. And this is all concealed from the public. He continues serving uh, as president of the Senate, because I just love to say president of the Senate. You know, it's the only thing I learned in history class. Mm -hmm. And he's just not doing very well. You got Hobart, who is ill. He goes, what do you do when you're ill? And it's the 1800s, the late 1800s, especially you go South, you go to Georgia where his wife and her family has this winter home, go down there, hang out, try to convalesce a little bit. And McKinley calls on Hobart to fire the secretary of war, because that's what you do when your vice president is ill. Maybe that'll get a little fire in his vice presidential booty. And, uh, (laughs) it doesn't really go that well because William McKinley, he's known for being pretty sensitive to people who are ill. You know, he's, he's a gentleman, but, uh, Hobart tries to fire Alger and Alger submits his resignation And this just kind of contributes, I think, to the stress uh, that Hobart just could not handle because he was so ill. Uh, Within a couple of days of delivering the news to Alger, Hobart becomes bedridden and he does not recover. Yeah, so on November 1st, 1899, the government announces to the public that Hobart would not return to public life. Now, he's still in office but he's not going to be back, at least for the time being, they think, uh, in office, essentially. Uh, so he's technically in office in the position, but not you know, participating in the Senate sessions and everything. Uh, a mere 20 days later, he dies at age 55, and President McKinley says, no one outside of this home feels the loss more deeply than I do, because they were buddies. And so, of course, there was a, a time of mourning and everything like that, and... About 50,000 people come out to honor Hobart. Uh, They erected a grave a few years later after he passes away, uh, about two years later. And there he lays in Patterson. Yeah. Man, the whole century, the 1800s, the 19th century is filled with vice presidents who die. And we end the century with another dead vice president. Yeah. Didn't we have an episode a long time ago called uh, The Dead Vice Presidents or something like that? Because, I mean, there's just so many of them in a row. I think we uh, did. Or not, maybe not in a row, but uh, right next to each other that, that pass away in office. Yeah. We did not cover Hobart in that episode. I'm very confident that we didn't talk How about How dare we? I know. And our apologies to the good people of um, Northeast Ohio and New Jersey who revere these men, I'm sure. They they know them. They probably learn about them in school. I didn't. Yeah, me either. Definitely not. And that's well, the reason you have this podcast. 
And you should appreciate this podcast and to show your appreciation for all the learning you've obtained, all the learning you've obtained, all the knowledge you've obtained <laughs> through our podcast, you should head over to iTunes and tell everybody how good at English I am. Uh, <laughs> head over to iTunes and leave us a review. We really appreciate that. It helps us out. It lets new people know uh, about the show. We got a couple great reviews this week. Uh, we appreciate that very much. And of course, you know the happy dance. That's what we do. Yeah. Hey, Ben, we haven't reminded people lately that we have a Patreon account. So That's you true. can do the whole electioncollege.com slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, or patreon.com slash electioncollege. And, you know, if you want to send us some money, we'll never turn that down. That's right. And while we're not turning anybody down, we'd love to interact with you on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and, you know, we check Instagram, too. We're at Election College on all of those wonderful sites. Thank you for listening very much. We appreciate it. And we'll talk to you next time. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.